0: So, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this sermon series. It's only three weeks long, and we're only going over one chapter of the Bible, John chapter 17. But the implications of what Jesus prays about, who he prays for, uh, you, just the revelation that it gives us into his heart and his mind, uh, you know, things that he finds the most important as he's nearing the end of his life here on earth, it has the potential to be pretty life-changing. We just finished up a series called Enemies of the Heart, and we dealt with greed and we dealt with guilt and anger and jealousy. We kind of approached that from the negative side of things, if you will, because we talked about the things that are like bad stuff. And we talked about how Jesus changes that. And we looked at scripture and how God provides us with the tools to deal with those things in our life. And we're looking at the implications of uh, the positive side of things, really. And, And this is not like one of those things where we design, you know, and I said, oh, let's put this sermon series right after this, you know, for this reason. But it was one of the things that kind of struck me as this was coming up because... What, what Jesus prays about and what it means for our life and the perspective that we have in our relationship with God uh, really does change our hearts and it changes our life experience. It changes how we move through uh, this uh, this life. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the implications for that for us and talking about that. Uh, like Chip said, we're, uh, John chapter 17 is just a prayer, the whole chapter is Jesus praying. It's the longest prayer we have of Jesus. It's the the greatest prayer that he that he gives. Some of you like are thinking, "What? I thought that was the Lord's prayer." Well, no, we're not talking. We're not talking about that for this sermon series. We're talking about this, and I, I guess you could say uh, I'm a professional prayer, uh, if you will. And it's not because like I'm great at praying. But it's because people look at me and say, oh, let's have the professional do it. I mean, and that's just kind of the reaction sometimes I get. Sometimes with family and we're at a meal or something like that, I was like, well, let's have Rob pray. It's like, what? why is it got to be me? It could be somebody else. One of my favorite things about small group, and, and some of you heard me say this before, uh, but if I'm, I happen to be leading us in the prayer time and I say, hey, who would like to pray to close us out for our group time? you know, it's just amazing how a painful eye contact becomes at that point. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, you know, looking up, looking around, you know, all, uh, looking at the floor. And, and that's kind of the reaction that I get. And one of the things that I'm hoping uh, kind of comes as a result of, of this sermon series and how we see Jesus pray and how he approaches it is that it'll help to change maybe how we think about that. Because on the one hand, while I can kind of understand where we might have a little bit of discomfort praying in public or with each other, uh, you know, in our small groups or, or maybe even a, a church setting, like if I said, hey, would somebody like to pray for us right now? Like, what, see, there have it's you know, oh, oh, he can't see me because of the bright light. So, you know, kind of thing, uh, ostrich, you know, head in the sand kind of, kind of deal. Um, but, but for us to think about that differently and, and to understand that God desires a particular type of relationship with us, a communion with him. Uh, that comes as a result of us being able to be familiar enough with him to talk with him, and that's something that we can all uh, take, take part in. Like I said earlier, we we might be more familiar with the Lord's Prayer and maybe some of us even have that memorized, but this is Jesus' greatest prayer in John chapter 17. It comes at the end of John 14 through 17, it's Jesus' farewell discourse. This is what he's teaching, this is what he's talking about with the disciples before his death on the cross. And so you might think that as he's nearing the end of his ministry that these are going to be some of the most foundational important things that he saves for the end, saves the best for last for us to know and understand and he ends all of that uh, talking with his disciples with, with this prayer. And so uh, it's, it's, it's actually greater than the Lord's prayer. I mean, this is the better prayer. So I, don't, I didn't know if you knew that there were hierarchies of prayers in the Bible like we compare, I'm just kidding. Like there's no bracket and they didn't go head to head or anything like that. Uh, but this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's, it's the one that, uh, that shows his divinity. It shows who, who he really is and what he cares about, what's near to his heart and the heart, heart of God. Um, it's the longest and the greatest, not because of its length, or flowery content because of what it means for us. Now, I've heard some fancy prayers in my day, and maybe that's some of the thing that kind of keeps us from feeling comfortable in our own prayer uh, lives, uh, where I've heard some people revert to the King's English. Have you guys ever noticed that before? Somebody's praying, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where did where did that come from? I feel like I'm in you know Downton Abbey or something now. All of a sudden, somebody started praying. Or uh, sometimes people... Uh, think that God has forgotten His name? Have you ever heard those kind of prayers before? Now, no perfect people allowed. Like, there's no, there's no judgment. But like, God's name is every other word or something like that. God, I just and God, Lord. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, again, no judgment there. Or, uh, you know, they, they go long enough. You ever had that prayer where it goes long enough where you kind of look around, and you're like, what is happening here? Or It sounds like there's a whole sermon being preached, like in the sermon or something. Uh, some of you guys are laughing at those, some of those more than others. I'm not sure what that says uh, about us. Um, but the most powerful prayers that I've heard have none of that. The most powerful prayers, and I think Jesus represents this in his prayer, are the ones that are the most honest, the transparent. They're full of love. Uh, It's evident that they're informed by what God desires for that person or for those people. Um, And sometimes even to the exclusion of their own desires. Those are some of the most powerful prayers that exist and that we can pray. And this prayer from Jesus is very much like that. So John chapter 17, hopefully you already have turned to that in your Bible. And we're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And keep in mind, as we open this up, that we find Jesus in this intimate moment with his disciples, whom he's praying out loud with and for, and he's hours away from completing the work of the cross. And so that's the context in which Jesus prays this prayer, John 17, 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Anytime I read a passage like this, anytime we read a passage like this, and Jesus had just said, it's always good to kind of go and look back and see what he was talking about. In John chapter 16, he was revealing to his disciples and encouraging them that, hey, he's about to go back to the Father. His death, burial, and resurrection is coming. But their grief that they will experience and have to deal with in the life Will eventually turn into joy. And so he's reminding and encouraging uh, them of this truth that he's been teaching among them. In John chapter 16, verse 33, this is the last verse in that chapter, right before 17. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world which is a great reminder for us, a great encouragement as Christ followers, as we follow Jesus. And so then he launches into his prayer. And before we get into some of the details of that, I want to mention something that's very important, I think, right at the very beginning, and that's Jesus' posture as he prays. I think many of us are probably more familiar with the phrase, like, every head bowed, every eyes closed. And, like, when we were kids, if we grew up in church, we kind of look around, see what people are actually doing, like, are people really just closing their eyes voluntarily. What's going on here? This is kind of strange. And then that's just kind of what we grew up in. And we uh, w- that became normal for us, maybe, if we grew in the church. And, and that's what we did. But Jesus here, his posture for praying is Jesus is looking up heavenward. And, and so, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of different postures of prayer throughout Scripture. And so absolutely, like, it makes sense. There are going to be times when we're praying, we're... Um, making ourselves humble before God, that maybe we're praying a prayer of confession and repentance, whatever it may be, making a request, whatever it may be. And so we're either on our knees or we're bowing or prostrate on the ground before, um, before God. And, and that might be the posture that we take in those kind of circumstances. But for this prayer that Jesus is praying, it's a prayer of understanding of relationship. It's an understanding of, yes, recognizing God's sovereignty, but also recognizing his position as who he is because of who God is and who God calls Jesus to be. And the same thing is true for us, that one of the things that this prayer should do, and specifically this beginning prayer, is it should help us to contextualize the perspective that we get to have as people who are chosen to be children of God. Because that's what Jesus allows us to be. I mean, that's one of the things that he, he did. He allows us to be redeemed and reconciled to God so that we can have this level of familiarity with him that we can look up to him and speak with him face to face. And so this is how Jesus... Talks to God in this prayer, and he starts off with asking to be glorified. And you might think, well, this is kind of strange because we know Jesus is God's son, and we know that he's divine, that he's God made flesh, and, and he dwelt among us. And so that's a thing that we're aware of. But people at that time didn't necessarily see Jesus in that way because Jesus didn't lord his glory over people. He lived very humbly, he lived very poorly, he didn't have a place of his own, and he relied on the generosity of others as he went through and, and taught, and he lived out his ministry. And so his glory was not something that he regularly showed people around him. It certainly was not to direct attention just at himself, even when he did, And this glory and this prayer is that God will reveal this glory to the world. Now, the disciples had already experienced Jesus' glory uh, in the transfiguration of Jesus. This is a time on a mountain that Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus and God showed up. Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And that's not the, the perspective they had until after Jesus' resurrection. Because at that time, and you can read about this in Mark chapter 9, Peter, James, and John go up there. Uh, Jesus is there. Moses and Elijah show up, and they're hanging out talking. And Peter's reaction is, hey, look at these great teachers, these pillars of the faith. Um, let's, let's build them each a tent so we can hang out. And that may sound a little strange to us. I, I don't know, if you're hanging out with people and you're thinking, oh man, here's some people that we should show honor to. I don't know that our first thought is, let's make everybody a tent and we can hang out. Uh, but for them, for Peter, in his, in his mindset, there was actually a feast that the Israelites celebrated called, called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents is, is what we would, uh, what would think that of. And what he was doing is he was thinking he was honoring Jesus as being part of the pillar of the Jewish faith along with Moses and Elijah. But what he was missing in his perspective at that moment is Jesus was not just some great teacher. He wasn't just this person that we should follow that maybe we'll end up living a better quality of life if we do this. But that Jesus was actually divine and that Moses and Elijah don't even hold a candle to him. And that's why in Mark Mark 9, verse 7, a cloud appears and covers them, and God says, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. And I think it's important for us to remember, to contextualize who Jesus is, and what our relationship to him is, and how he redeems and reconciles our relationship to God, and how that's meant to change how we think about our lives here on this earth. Uh, Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, he continues and, and uh, reminds us of who Jesus is in, in full, full glory. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the, the supremacy. And this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh, and his full glory is about to be revealed through his work on the cross. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, Paul continues on. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Um, one of the things that was always funny to me is any Superman movie, that people never figure out that Clark Kent is Superman. I mean, really, the only difference is is he's wearing a pair of glasses, right? And so is it, does he really look that different? I mean, do glasses really change? Like if one Sunday I came up and I put glasses on, would you guys really not know who it was? It's like, who is the strange person that happens to have glasses on? And, and sometimes I think, you know, we look back at Jesus and, and think, about, think about him like that sometimes and sometimes how the disciples like, didn't fully understand fully get who Jesus was and what it meant for his glory to be revealed. But it wasn't until after the resurrection, the work of the cross that we are able to fully understand who Jesus, who Jesus is in his entirety. And so when Jesus is asking to be glorified, he's not just talking about himself um, and, and just the world being able to know he, who really, he who really is. What he wants to accomplish is shining a light on who God is and what God has sent him there to do. The glory that Jesus sought for himself was really just so he could reflect glory back to God. Because he's the one who, who deserves it. He's our creator. He's the one who sends Jesus to us. J- Jesus comes as God in the flesh, revealed through his work on the cross. And this is what, this is, this is what that glory reveals to us in our relationship uh, to God and how we're connected with him. Verses 2 and 3 from chapter 17. Jesus says, For you granted uh, him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so as Jesus is talking about the revelation of his glory, one of the things he does to to point out what this glory is going to reveal is is talking about eternal life and what that looks like. But he speaks of it in very different terms of what we might typically think about it or talk about it among ourselves. Because Jesus doesn't talk about eternity in terms of length of time or how big it is or those kinds of things the way we think about you know how how do you you know how do you wrap your mind around eternity or infinity like he's not talking about a time frame at all he's talking about a person and he's talking about a relationship when when Jesus talks about eternity he explains it in terms of a relationship with God through Jesus a theologian Mark Moore uh, writes this about this verse he says eternal life is knowing God personally and intimately. He is known not through mystic meditation, but through a person, Jesus. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have access to God. And this is what God always intended for us to experience forever with him. It was never about the time frame. it was always about the relationship. And so the problem of our sin at the very beginning and how it continues to break things and how we continue to, lead, to break down physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually uh, is, is not that, you know, you know, our lifespan has been shorted th- this time, uh, you know, this side of heaven. The problem is that it's separated us from God and the relationship that he wants us to be able to experience with him. And so, for example, when we see glimpses of heaven in the book of Revelation, and sometimes you know we may avoid Revelation because of all of its apocalyptic language, or sometimes we get ca- caught up in things that Revelation is not actually about because, uh, because of you know, the apocalyptic language, but when you look and read at descriptions about heaven and what it's going to be and what it's going to look like, it's not described in things like, you know here's going to be your job in heaven, here are all the things you're going to do, and here are the things you're going to experience. It's talked about in terms of who's going to be there that, that they're going to be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and that Jesus is going to be there and the veil is going to be gone like there's no separation between us we're going to be face to face with God with Jesus and that's what eternity is all about it's about being in the presence of the greatest companion we will never we will ever know that's, that's the goal of being a disciple of Jesus is to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with God with each other and to share that relationship with other people who haven't yet experienced it. Um, so we've covered Jesus' glory, that's what he starts off in prayer for, and, and his glory is going to reveal uh, eternal life with God, that relationship that he's working toward, that we're working toward, and, and then the most important moment that he concludes this with is the work he's about to do in the cross, verses four and, 4 and 5. He says, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus um, had a job to do, and the thing that he came to do, the glory that was to be revealed in him, was so that we could be redeemed back to God. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, uh, Paul records, this This is my favorite chapter in, in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, and Paul records at the beginning of, of this chapter an early Christian hymn for us, and so this is, this is some of the things that they would use to celebrate and worship what, what God had done through Jesus. Verses 6 through 8, read this. Read like this. Who, talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus... should should have been able to enjoy the full glory of his divinity as God's son, as being God in the flesh, put that all aside so that he could reflect God's glory and his desire for relationship with us. I mean, this, this was the thing that he came to do and Jesus was committed to accomplishing this. So in his final hours before, before he ends up in the garden and prays a, a much more difficult prayer before God, what was on Jesus' heart and mind at this moment was completing the work that he had been sent to do. That, that he would glorify Jesus. Jesus would be glorified with the glory that he had bef- with God before the world began because of what he does uh, with sin. That he has power over life and death. Jesus then becomes our ability to know and be known by God. So his own, his own status as being there before the world began, being a part of creation. That was all put aside so he could bring glory to us being able to have a relationship with God. And like Jesus, our lives exist to bring that same glory to God. Like that, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we've been redeemed and reconciled back to God so that we can enjoy that relationship with ever through him, forever through him. And, and as we, as we look at what Jesus prayed and what he was concerned with that, that same thing needs to affect our prayer life too. what we're pursuing, what we're looking for out of our relationship with God, what we're hoping to experience is that this is really about us, yes, absolutely experiencing the glory of God through Jesus, but also reflecting that same glory back to, back to him because he is worthy of our honor and our praise. Listen, uh, listen to the implications of this from these words from C.S. Lewis from his essay, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis writes this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours is to the life of an ad, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So the perspective, the contextualization that this gives us as disciples of Jesus, and it this is a different way of thinking. This is a different way of living than we might naturally expect or we might naturally be drawn to. The fact that we are here and we are privileged with the awesome honor and responsibility of being able to reflect God's glory through our own lives because of the work of Jesus and the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's the greatest purpose, that's the greatest meaningfulness that we can take part in our life. And it should direct how we think about ourselves, how we think about each other, how we think about the world, and how we think about our relationship with God. Glorifying God with our lives is a matter of eternal relationship. This is what God is calling us, calling, calling us into. It's not just about punching a ticket to heaven, but it's about being in relationship with him and sharing that with other people. And so my encouragement for us as a church is may our prayer life reflect this. May our actions reflect this, and how we think about living out our day-to-day lives. How we think about our jobs. How we think about our family. How we think about our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers. How we think about what we spend our time doing. It's like that is all meant to bring glory and reflect glory back to God. If um, if if maybe you're in a place in your life where it's like that—that's not even been a thing that you've been concerned about, and and yet you know that. There's got to be something a little more uh, to this life than maybe what you've been carried along with. Um, I I just want to give an invitation uh, to you that if you've never said, hey, I'm I'm ready to focus my life completely on god through jesus christ and that's one of the reasons why we're here as a church and so we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to take a next step next step on your faith journey uh, t- toward that and so just want to encourage you grab one of us in the lobby or write out a connect card or go on the velocitychurch.info and let us know um, but one of the things we're going to do and we do this every week at velocity is we're going to celebrate The glory that Jesus reflects back to the father through his actions on this earth that he died on the cross for our sins that he was buried and that he uh, Rose again under his own power to defeat the enemy of sin and death and that we get to celebrate that every week uh, together as a church family Uh, That one of the reasons why we gather each and every Sunday is so we can reflect God's glory to him in worship and celebration and so let me pray for us as we celebrate in that time together this morning. God, uh, we, we praise you for the work of Jesus Christ, how it reflects your glory, how it reveals to us who you are and the relationship that you di- desire for us. And God, we ask that through the help of your Holy Spirit, um, as you guide us and as you counsel us, that uh, we will pursue that in every, other, every area of our life that we might bring uh, you glory, regardless of uh, the glory we uh, experience for ourselves. God, we, we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.